Hello, back, welcome back from your weekends. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so this is Colin. Um, you know, a lot of times, I think on this show in particular, we see if we can maybe steer away from a sh- topic that virtually everybody in news media are covering. That doesn't seem possible sometimes, and this is one of those sometimes. Uh, this is our first chance really to to talk uh, about what happened last Tuesday night in the Atlanta area when a white gunman opened fire on three spas, killing eight people. All but one of the victims were women, including six of Asian descent. And it seemed as though it was not an isolated incident. Uh, We've, of course, been through years of xenophobic rhetoric from former President Trump, uh, often directed at Asians, particularly as regards the pandemic. And during that time, hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders increased 150 percent, according to one study by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. Of the nearly 38 incidents reported to stop AAPI hate, a coalition of community organizations, 68 percent were women. Um, More than 500 incidents have been reported in 2021 alone. So, you know, obviously there's something going on here. And it, it I just before we get into the guests, I'll just say. I, I was having an odd reverberation right before the show today. So um, I went to Yale University and there was a place called Calhoun College. And I just didn't think about it at all. Like, I don't even think I knew in four years of Yale that it was named after John C. Calhoun. At least that's the way it sets up in my mind these many, many decades later. But when it became obvious that that was the case quite recently, within the last four or five years, and I wound up writing for Salon about it and um, – it. it uh, I, I asked my roommate, my roommate for three years was a guy named Ken Jennings, not the Jeopardy guy. Uh, my Ken Jennings is black and left-handed. And I said, Ken, did we know that? Like, did we know that in 1975 that there was a college named after John C. Calhoun? And he said, Colin, you know what it's like to be left-handed. When you're left-handed, you notice a lot of things that don't work for left-handers, ways in which left-handers are structurally disadvantaged uh, in a nor- what seems to be a normal environment to everybody else. Because that's kind of what it's like being black. And I feel as though what I've seen over the last five to six days is some version of that in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community uh, in, in the United States, that there's a set of things that they were dealing with all along, a, a group of uh, uh, of structural disadvantages, to put it euphemistically, that they were keenly aware of uh, and, and that I was isolated from or maybe I chose to be insulated from them. I, I don't know. But obviously, we need to redirect our en- energies and, and begin talking about this in, in a different way. And that's what we're doing. We're going to do that today all the way through the show. So uh, before I introduce to you the uh, guests we're fortunate to get here for the top of the show, uh, I, I do want to say the second segment of the show, the explanation proffered by the shooter and somewhat embraced by the police was that he was a sex addict uh, and that this was his way of somehow or other dealing with his moral repugnance um, connected to his sex addiction. We're going to sort of just talk to you about the history of that particular claim, which is kind of a canard and kind of a, a part of the uh, of a kind of theater in American life. If you think about like Harvey Weiner, Weinstein and uh, Anthony Weiner and Jimmy Swaggart. And I mean, they all basically say that they're sex addicts and then they go seek treatment. 
there is no such thing as that as that diagnosis, just to be clear, within the world of uh, clinical diagnoses. So we'll talk about that. And then at the end, we're going to talk about kind of late night comedians and the way in which they seem to have found a moral language for talking about this particular problem, this problem of, of violence uh, and prejudice against Asian Americans. As they often do, they've found stronger language and better imagery than maybe some of the people leading on the non-comedic front. But we're going to begin with a conversation uh, with Hua Xu, uh, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of A Floating Chinaman, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific. He's an associate professor of English at Vassar College, and we were drawn to a piece he wrote in The New Yorker called The Muddled History of Anti-Asian Violence. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Colin, thanks for having me. And uh, that, was, that was such a thoughtful intro. I, I really appreciate what you were saying. Well, thank you. So um, if I ask you to explain what you mean by muddled, you're going to have to recite the entire, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, premise of the story. But but maybe sure. just just to, just to give us a, a thumbnail sense, give the listeners a thumbnail sense what you mean by muddled. Of course. So um, the piece you mentioned, you just mentioned, it was actually published in late February. So it actually happened before the Atlanta mm-hmm. Um, shootings last week. And I think what I was trying to wrap my head around at the time was, it was clear something was happening. There were all of these videos people were sharing of, you know, older Asian American folks getting uh, attacked in the streets. There were all sorts of uh, reports of people getting sort of randomly beaten up, but it didn't seem to constitute uh, a hate crime in many cases. And so I think what I was trying to, to figure out was sort of why it was so hard for larger society to recognize, uh, you know, incidents of anti-Asian violence, of which, you know, as you cited earlier, incidents have been going up, why it's so hard to sort of see that as as a hate crime. And I think part of that is just that society, even Asian Americans to some extent, lack a, a kind of coherent notion of our history and sort of um, that experience that, that you also mentioned up top. Yeah. So let's um, before we sort of go back to that that question uh, of the coherent narrative, let's say a little bit more, particularly with your own experience. uh, There were there have been cases that you got involved in uh, yourself uh, earlier in your life uh, that you cite in the New Yorker piece. Maybe you want to give people a a sense of the story of Quan Jung Kao. Okay, sure. You know, I was a college student and, you know, I had learned a lot about Asian American history and how, you know, in 1982, there was the killing of Vincent Chin by these disgruntled auto workers. Uh, there have been all sorts of laws and policies, random sort of ma- little known massacres throughout U.S. history. Uh, when I was in college, something similar happened um, nearby. I went to Berkeley and this guy was sort of drunkenly outside of his house and he was, he was really worked up at, at a sort of racial incident that happened at a bar earlier in the night. Uh, the two police officers who came onto the scene saw him waving a stick, um, and in their attempts to detain him, they actually uh, killed him. And in the uh, in the officer's defense afterwards, they said that he'd been waving the stick in this quote-unquote martial arts manner, um, that he resembled a ninja. Um, and so, you know, I thought that that was a truly horrific thing uh, when I was in college. This guy did not have this, any of those experiences in his background. Um, but it was all, but what I was... The reason I was thinking about it um, a couple weeks ago is just that I was reminded of how uh, invisible this felt at the time, just sort of how difficult it was to, you know, get peers or, or get other other folks at school um, 
interested in sort of looking into his case and sort of organizing around it. Um, so I think I was really struck not just by the fact that these things had happened in the past, but just by how difficult it was to, you know, organize around it or, or sort of um, motivate others to, to feel the way that um, some friends and I had been feeling about that. Yeah. And now there's a way over the last few days in which uh, I think for the rest of us, this the sense of something that has been very much pent up uh, is is coming out now, and and it's coming out uh, in, in lots of different ways. And I'm listening to, I was listening, I think, to an anchor and a reporter for NPR over the weekend. Both of them, I believe, uh, Asian American, and there was they were sort of saying on the air, we never have had this conversation before. Uh, we've never talked about some of these things uh, in in our entire careers. And, and that sort of gets circles back to your piece. And, and I wonder if there is a sense in which complaining or calling attention to these uh, tremendous injustices bumps up against uh, a narrative that that both sides have embraced. I mean, you know, I, I think I, I – you know, I'm a baby boomer, so I grew up with the idea of Asian Americans being this sort of great success story, this sure. incredibly successful um, exercise in assimilation. So in a way, the idea that there's this undercurrent that isn't even always under uh, of hatred and violence doesn't square that well with the myth that I'd absorbed. And maybe it's also a myth that the Asian American community has a little trouble letting go of in order to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's complicated what you're saying. I think if we were to think about, you know, what you're describing is the model minority myth yep. where, uh, you know, folks who have only been in the country a, a small amount of time can somehow excel according to American met metrics of achievement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Just the nature of immigration policy privileged those who were, you know, high skilled or pursuing graduate work. So Asian American immigrants have sort of over the past 50 years arrived with higher levels of educational attainment. Um, but I agree. I think that the part of the visibility question is just that uh, that myth sort of hangs over everyone, mm. uh, Asian Americans as well as, as, as non. And so when we talk about, say, structural disadvantages, um, is it a structural disadvantage to have been sort of welcomed into the country because of your educational attainment level or aspirations? Um, you know, it does create structural disadvantages, but it's a different type of racialized treatment than sort of what's happened to African-Americans, right, or the Latinx population. So I think it just becomes much harder for the average person who isn't living with these things or dealing with these things or thinking deeply about these things to understand, um, you know, the, the sort of idea of feeling perpetually foreign or sort of the mental health um, challenges posed by sort of the higher expectations society has for you as the model or just sort of the ways in which it's difficult to understand your own identity in this sort of black-white paradigm. Is there a way in which it could be said that Donald Trump kind of almost unintentionally brought this into the foreground just because he's always been such an all-purpose all exploiter uh, of societal divisions in America. <laughs> Anything that he could possibly use to advance his own cause by demonizing some other group uh, was very much a reflexive trait for him. And so he did it with uh, he did it with Asians. Uh, and, and in a way, it feels like, I mean, first of all, there's a, a horrible set of consequences to it, not at all limited to what happened last Tuesday night in Atlanta. Uh, you uh, were already beginning to write about that, as you say, before uh, it had even the Atlanta event had even happened. And there's just more happening and more to come. But there's a way in which 
paradoxically, he kind of makes us all face it. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, I guess he does make us all face it. Um, I mean, I guess that's one thing you could definitely say about the past four years is that America has had to face a lot of things that perhaps as a nation we hadn't reckoned with mm-hmm. collectively. Um, you know, whether or not that reckoning will actually produce something meaningful, um, particularly for those affected, that sort of remains to be seen. I mean, I do think that Trump deserves a lot of the, you know, deserves a lot of the blame, right? Because there is a way in which um, calling it the China virus and it's like all those, all those things that we we're going through about a year ago, that only helped perpetuate the sense of foreignness or the sense of foreign invasion. Um, but, you know, th- these things have also been going on for hundreds of years prior to that. And so I think Trump just grabbed onto this uh, really alluring kind of rhetoric around um, sort of Asians being these foreign agents or, or being um, perpetually alien that, um, you know, I think average people may not have been aware was such a potent stereotype, but it was just sort of there for the taking. And uh, he definitely accelerated the way that people might, might act on those, those stereotypes. One of the things that you explore in your piece uh, is the way in which uh, um, it may have been difficult for there to be a coherent and cohesive narrative in a minority community that is, in fact, composed of multiple minorities. I mean, you could say that about, I mean, here where I, where I live in, in Hartford, Connecticut, there's a substantial mm-hmm. schism, uh, identity schism between uh, blacks of West Indian ascent and black people who are part of the uh, upward movement from the South. And, and in many ways, they, they don't identify one, with one another that much. Uh, and, and certainly within the Latino community, it's not that hard to find a Mexican-American who doesn't think Cuban Americans are really Hispanic or Latino or something. But sure. but but one of the things that you talk about is, you know, is it a single identity uh, among Asian American Pacific Islanders? Uh, and does it maybe need to come more together as an identity? You know, I think that's one of the questions of this moment. Um, when I was writing and sort of my, my perspective is always like very informed by history. And so, you know, dating back to the late 60s, um, Asians from I mean, Asia is like a huge place, right? And so anyone from that part of the world who's here, like that, that is part of the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Whether or not it works in practical terms is, is a different question. And I think we're really in a moment where it could sort of go either way. I mean, I think if we were to kind of follow the historical path where this identity is very much about uh, political solidarity and sort of looking out for one another and building a sense of community, not necessarily one that's um, ready-made, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of potential, but I think it also just sort of exposes some of the, um, you know, potential schisms there as well, particularly along lines of class, long lines of when you immigrated, where you immigrated from and questions like that. Of course, uh, you know, uh, there's sort of a bitter irony is the, the people who've been especially, quote, good, unquote, at erasing these distinctions have been racists. Um, and, and, <laughs> right. and so your article is full of instances uh, of people who are uh, of Japanese descent being, quote, unquote, blamed for the, quote, unquote, China virus. And then also the story of Vincent Chin, which goes the opposite way for people who, do, who don't know that one, uh, give people a, a, a sense of that. Sure. This was a real galvanizing moment for um, Asian Americans in the early 80s. He was a, uh, you know, just like a draftsman who was working in Detroit. He was out for his bachelor party. He was of Chinese descent. And he got into a bar brawl with a couple guys who were um, 
disgruntled auto workers. I think one had just been laid off a couple of years earlier. And I guess in the course of the fight, they had sort of blamed the Japanese for Detroit's declining um, auto industry. And so that became part of why this, this was uh, perceived to be a hate crime. They eventually um, followed him to the parking lot of McDonald's where they, where they beat him to death. And this was a moment where Asian Americans, new immigrants, old immigrants, people who'd been here hundreds of years, uh, they came together um, to sort of protest lenient sentences that the two guys got. And it was somewhat similar to what happened last week because just as the um, the spokesman from the police office said that the assailant was having a bad day, uh, I think the judge said something effective, like these aren't the type of guys you, we, you lock up. Um, and so they ended up getting like very lenient sentences and it sort of galvanized an entire movement. Although the, so the, way to you begin treating any problem is to name it. Um, and um, if there's a kind of a reluctance, maybe on all sides for different reasons, to name the racism that's part of all of these stories and, and many, many other stories. Um, and, and maybe also a, a time to talk about intersectionality, the sense mm-hmm. that this problem is I mean, some of these stories seem very, very similar in, in narrative structure to Black Lives Matter stories, to stories of uh, of members of the black community who've been shot for no good reason and who the crime against them has been minimized. And the people who did it, uh, often members of the police force, are underpunished. It, it just I, there's a familiarity to this that makes me think, well, may, is there maybe – a, a, a mistake in not making more common cause among everybody who who's coming out on the wrong end of, end of this. You know, in a strange way, uh, over the past week, there have been moments of, of I don't want to say hope, but it does feel as though some of these connections are being made. Uh, you know, in the piece, I talk about a couple of Asian Americans who recently died at the hands of the police, mm-hmm. uh, Kristen Hall and Angelo Pinto. And those are definitely cases that feel less like instance of, you know, quote unquote, anti-Asian hate and more just like moments where uh, policing really overstepped its bounds. So I think that you are starting to see conversations, whether it's Christian Hall and Angelo Quinto, who are Asian American, um, sort of becoming part of a larger uh, discussion around policing and communities of color or, uh, you know, different communities, you know, even even the fact that we're having this conversation now. Uh, beginning to recognize the, the sort of uh, intertwined fates of, of of folks of color, minorities, and whatnot. It seems like, I mean, uh, it seems like most, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about what, what we can do about all this. Although, as I think about it, it seems like all of the things that we're going to wind up talking about seem so primitive in the sense of the stuff that really just should have already happened everywhere. Um, you know, uh, I mean, for me, I, I've been thinking, so we do a different kind of show on Fridays. It's a cultural roundtable and uh, sort of rotating group of panelists. And one of them was uh, is named Tracy Wu Fastenberg. And so as her name or the middle part of her name suggests, she is of Asian descent and she happened to be on last Friday. And I was just thinking, well, I'm, I'm just more, I've been more aware of this stuff during the pandemic of the just you know casual persecution uh, of Asian Americans because I know Tracy and because I'm aware of things that she said and I'm I'm with her on Facebook and you know and but I don't know I mean to suggest that that's some kind of solution suggests that we're just not having conversations uh, that you would think would be kind of obvious I mean 
Wait, I, guess I don't know. I don't expect you to know the answer to this, but why don't why didn't white Americans know that that all this stuff was happening? Are we just too insensitive to ask questions? I, I don't. I don't. I can't answer that yeah. um, as as somebody who's not a white American, yeah. but you know I do think that there's probably just a you know we only have so much curiosity or or compassion throughout the day, and it's not that Asian Americans were ever undeserving of that, but perhaps that sense of curiosity or compassion just never really extended there until until it really had to. So you know I, I mean I think it's positive that you're thinking about these things or that, you know, you're, you're so forthright about kind of the ways in which the past week has changed your perspective. And, you know, I hope people listening, people in our lives can, can sort of do that for one another, regardless of whether something horrific has has happened, but just, uh, you know, we, we've never had so much access to other people as we do now with the internet, but we've never been so, so, um, like unempathetic or so callous toward one another. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's, the only place where we can just start as individuals. Let me just ask one more thing about that. It seems to me, and this is going to come up at the end of our show, of our show too, when we play some clips of what some of the late night comedians have been saying. There's just, I mean, when you when you looked at the level of denial that was going on in Atlanta, you know, about this guy having a bad good day, or it's a sex addiction, or anything but race, there's a way in which the American myth uh, about uh, of assimilation is so clung to. We have such an investment in it that, or at least some people have such an investment in it, that it's really, really difficult to begin a conversation by saying, well, this is a racist country where, in fact, it's pretty easy once you've kicked a person to depersonalize them so that you keep kicking them and beating them until they're dead. Uh, and and that seems to be happening over and over in some of the stories in your piece and stories that, that I read elsewhere. I mean, it's just not what Americans want to believe. And, and and I wonder how you how we press back against that without seeming to completely devalue uh, this country that's so important to so many people. I mean, we just seem unable to be honest about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I, I think about it a lot. I don't think, you know, it goes back to the whole thing about how it, it doesn't make you un-American to sort of want America to be better, right, or to to be critical of it. But I do agree with you that there's there's a way in which uh, America has never really reckoned with or, or grieved its own past, and I mean I, I think it should be liberating to think about how how checkered the past has been and sort of how much work there is to to bring it in alignment with its stated values. Um, I know that that's very threatening to a lot of people, but I think it, it's just it's it's really meant to make make this thing better for all of us, not just to make some make someone feel bad about themselves. No. When you think about it, and I'm just thinking about it for the first time, the idea of a melting pot is kind of a violent image for assimilation. This idea you're <laughs> going to throw people into this bubbling cauldron of molten mem- uh, metals, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and make them, you know, become the same gray color as everything else. Uh, you know, even our as our, uh, one, of our more, uh, our, one of our more affirming images is kind of scary. Um, well, we'll stop there. Ah. We'll stop there. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was so great to talk to you, and we were so lucky to get you, and we'd love to, uh, you to come back uh, next time. Uh, but obviously next time you, you need to have really uh, easy, glib answers to really complicated <laughs> questions. Uh, but you did great uh, this time. Washu, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of A Floating Chinaman, uh, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks.
All right. East Connecticut. <laughs> okay. We'll be back uh, after this. We're going to have a conversation about sex addiction, which is really kind of a chimera, you know, this sort of thing that people use to explain horrible things they do. All right. Uh, so we're back. Uh, we are continuing to talk uh, about the killings uh, in Atlanta last week, uh, but we're kind of coming at them uh, from different angles. Uh, we're going to talk now uh, about the claim made by the killer uh, that he had a sexual addiction, that he was killing as a way to eliminate the temptation, which, of course, doesn't make any sense at all, even on its own terms. Joining us now is Joshua Grubbs, an assistant professor of psychology at Bowling State University. Uh, he, uh, his research uh, is uh, primarily concerned with the scientific study of addiction, personality, and morality. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So let's talk about this term. First of all, we should say um, that the whatever the latest iteration of the DSM is, the Diagnostic Manual of uh, Clinical Psychology, it doesn't recognize sexual addiction as a thing. That 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 is certainly correct. Uh, there was a proposal back many years ago now for the inclusion of a new uh, disorder called hypersexual behavior disorder or hypersexual disorder, which would have basically been sexual addiction, but it didn't make it. For inclusion, it was studied pretty extensively, and then ultimately it was not included. Now, having said that, you know, the DSM is just one manual for diagnosing mental illness. And on a global scale, the international classification of diseases by the World Health Organization is much more commonly used. And they do have a diagnosis coming out in the 11th edition next year of compulsive sexual behavior disorder. It's an impulse control disorder, but it pretty much does cover what we might call sexual addiction. Explain, well, if there is a distinction worth making, what would it be? I mean, I think the main distinction is that at this point, we really don't have enough evidence to parse out in a very scientific way whether or not compulsive sexual behaviors, people that are out of control in their sexual behaviors, whether or not that's truly an addiction. It's, it's, I mean, addiction is a debated topic in the academic communities to begin with. It really is, though, an academic kind of scientific and research debate more so than maybe a public debate. And what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, if I tell you, well, I know that you're doing this behavior way too much and it's ruining your life, but calling it an addiction is wrong. It's really an impulse control disorder. I don't think that that matters a lot to most people. If you feel like you're out of control and you can't stop, the exact words you're using may not matter that much even if the neural mechanisms and the exact presentation of symptoms fall in one category versus another. Right. I mean, I think in layman's terms, uh, you know, an addiction would be yeah, something that you can't stop doing even when you know it's counterproductive for you and, and, and even destructive of other aspects of your life. Uh, and maybe also something which if you tried to stop, you would go through identifiable withdrawal symptoms. Right. But, but, you know, I mean, another way to think about this is in terms of neurochemicals, right? I mean, right. You, you get addicted to dopamine and adrenaline and all kinds of stuff. I don't know if addicted is the right word, but when you start getting those baths you know, in your brain right. of those chemicals, it, it, is, it starts to resemble an addiction to alcohol or nicotine or something else, maybe a little bit more. 
Yeah, at, at the end of the day, all of us seek experiences that release pleasure-seeking chemicals in our brains. Mm. And sex is one of those experiences. You know, people don't have sex just for procreation. I know that that's probably shocking to most of your listeners. But as it turns out, humans do seem to seek after this because they enjoy it. And the reason that we enjoy it is based on specific neurological you know, responses to the behavior. And, and so, yes, there are neurochemical processes going on that signal pleasure that people can become quite obsessed with obtaining. Arguably, that applies to a range of behaviors, but mm-hmm. sex seems to be particularly high on that list for people. Right. So one thing that you bring up that I think is really interesting would be that, you know, if if sexual addiction had a kind of obvious clinical and, and, and kind of neuromedical status, then we'd probably all kind of experience it the same way. And we kind of wind up and kind of be, it would be able, easy to diagnose across other kinds of cultural differences. But it turns out, for example, if you, if you type sexual, sexual addiction, Jimmy Swaggart into Google, you'll get a lot of responses right away because there's a way in which this particular idea exists within, especially certain Christian categories. That's that's certainly correct. I mean, mental illness is inherently culturally mediated and moderated, which is a fancy way of saying that mental illnesses often do look a little bit different in different cultures. But addiction in particular, you know, alcohol addiction is alcohol addiction and the dependency and the physical craving patterns and all of that are quite similar, whether you're in Russia or the United States or in Brazil or in China, you know, the, these type of cultural norms don't, don't necessarily dictate the physical experience of addiction in the same way that we might see with something like, you know, supposed sexual addiction. You're absolutely correct. The Christian community in particular seems to have some really interesting sort of dynamics around this. Yeah, and I mean, it, it it makes sense from a certain point of view. I'm going to use a word that I probably shouldn't use in connection in this particular context, given what happened last Tuesday. But there is um, a kind of kabuki, a kind of American symbolic theater that we've become kind of familiar with. Somebody gets caught. Uh, doing something, you know, sometimes it's a religious leader, sometimes it's an Anthony Weiner or a Harvey Weinstein. And and you could pretty much set a kitchen timer for when they're going to say, I've got a problem, I'm seeking treatment, you won't see me for a while, I'm going into treatment. It's Jimmy Swaggart, it's Ted Haggard, uh, it's, you know, and, 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 and that's sort of because... And that's why I kind of use that word, that loaded word kabuki, which obviously a little bit clangs wrong right now. But because we can recognize the symbolic nature of this. Oh, this person has a thing going on that's clinical in a muddy way. He's going to go do something about it. And then he's going to come back, presumably kind of treated and released. I mean, we it's a recognizable social narrative. Right. I mean, that is certainly correct. I, I have... Um, I don't even want to say joked, but I, I've commented several times this past week that I'm quite used to being asked to comment when, you know, the Anthony Wieners and Harvey Weinsteins go through and, and make their claims of sexual addiction and needing treatment. I, I'm not used to being asked to comment on sexual addiction in the wake of, you know, mass murder, because that that is not the normal cultural narrative that we see around it. So the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet so far is pornography. And that often right. comes up in these kinds of narratives. And, you know, this person used pornography as a teen 
I mean, first of all, doesn't everybody use pornography as a teen? So, to what degree is pornography and the use of pornography a uh, a useful thing for us to talk about or to apply to this level of dysfunction? You know, so you are correct. At this point in in history, it's basically ninety five plus percent of adolescent boys. Uh, report using pornography intentionally at least once, most of them reporting much more regularly than that. And, and the statistics for, for adolescent girls is a bit a bit smaller, uh, but it's still anywhere from 40 to 70%, depending on the study and how they ask the questions. And so pornography is this incredibly commonly engaged in behavior, even in adolescence, and it keeps going up as you go through early adulthood. And so, yes, pornography is extremely common. It's a very normal kind of recreational sexual activity that people are engaging in. Some people do report that they have an addiction to pornography, which, again, is every bit as hazy and controversial as as the sex addiction idea. Uh, in fact, it typically is thought of as a type of sex addiction uh, if it if it were to exist. But again, it's quite controversial. And yet, again, I, I'm not sure that the framing of, of that discussion, I mean, again, it's, it's quite fascinating, but it, it probably doesn't account for acts of violence. Because, again, if, if hundreds of millions of people in the United States are, are using pornography regularly, and if recent studies are correct, of that hundreds of millions, you know, probably a few million of them, and probably talking one to four million of them, have concerns that they might be using too much pornography, uh, you know, there aren't 4 million people going out and committing mass acts of violence to get rid of their temptation. So again, the, the logic of connecting this particular act to that particular addiction or compulsion or whatever you want to call it doesn't quite flow. It doesn't flow naturally for sure. You no, know, I think it's attractive to certain people who want to do something about pornography. And, right. But there's also, I think that's kind of an, that ship has sailed. I mean, or that horse is out of the barn or whatever <laughs> you want to say, you're not going to be able to do anything about pornography anymore. That's it's done. Um, The other thing that I think is sort of, and you just alluded to to it in your answer, but I want to sort of tack it down a little bit more sharply, too. To me, one of the most potentially toxic things about the way this whole thing got talked out initially and this guy's own claim that he had a sex uh, addiction, even if we were going to uh, subscribe to the WHO and say, okay, there's something that's almost like sex addiction and it's, you know, it's nameable and stuff like that. Well, there's a lot of things that are nameable. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are are phobias that are nameable. Nameable people are have you know I think alerophobia is the, the fear of cats. Well, I mean, if I had that, that doesn't mean I'm going to go kill every cat in my neighborhood or kill six cats to you know or eight cats to somehow to remove the problem that cats pose to me. The notion that you, there, there's an easy leap from I have this problem and that's why I had to go kill eight people. Uh, I, I'd hate to see us make that into uh, some kind of, of natural leap. That's the difference between this and Ted Haggard and Jimmy Swagger and Harvey Weinstein and Anthony Weiner, right? That's not what they did. They were trying to explain why they were doing creepy sex stuff, not why they were killing people. Right. And I think you you really kind of get at the heart of this. You know, I mean, in general, blaming acts of violence on mental illness is just stigmatizing to the mental health community and to people that are, are living well with a whole variety of different struggles and disorders. I mean, 
it's just not a, a rational claim that that such a thing would lead you to go out and eliminate the threat, so to speak. You know, I the notion of eliminating temptation, I've seen that, you know, as a counselor, as a therapist, I've seen I've seen religious leaders talking about it for before specifically talking about pornography. And what they typically mean by that is getting their computers out of their bedrooms or not sleeping in the same room as their cell phone or, or in extreme cases, you know, destroying their computers or devices. But that would be the extreme case. You know, again, there's not this, there's no version of this that that goes out to someone committing murder to get rid of a temptation that was in front of them. Again, that, that logic, I mean, perhaps that is what he felt he was doing, but it, it does not make sense. Right, we're going to stop there. Uh, I will say that we've been talking to Joshua Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Bowling Green University. He's, uh, his research is primarily concerned with the scientific study of addiction, personality, and morality. We discovered him partly because of a piece in The Conversation, uh, a site that we like a lot called Sex Addiction Isn't a Justification for Killing or Really an Addiction. It reflects a person's own misgivings about sex justification. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to do it. Thank you for having me. We'll take a break, and we will be back with more. Think about what you have done to me The damage is much deeper than you'll ever see Hit me like a hammer to my head I wonder what you pushed or were you led Why did you do it? Why did you do that thing to me? All right. Uh, we are back. Um, and first of all, I have some thank yous to say. Uh, one thank you would be to uh, Kat Pastor. Great to have her back. Great to be sitting uh, across uh, the, the room and looking at her through some glass, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, which is how we like to look at people these days. We like to have a big pane of glass in between us and them. Nonetheless, it's great to have her there. She's the technical producer uh, of this show, the person who makes it all sound so good. Uh, and then we got Betsy Kaplan, who is not here, but feels like she's here. Uh, she's the senior producer of the Colin Mac and Roe show and the producer of this particular episode. All right. So <clears throat> we're going to do something that we don't typically do, which is we're going to have a segment without a guest, but which I think I can sort of successfully talk us through. Um, and, and, and here's what the segment's about. It's kind of about the role that comedians play in a situation like this. Now, you wouldn't think ordinarily that a mass shooting would be a time when we would need comedians or that comedians would be especially well-situated to address. But I, I think it is true, and I think it's become more true for a bunch of different reasons. I mean, we've, of course, kind of come out of four years uh, of a kindergarten class with no teacher, right, we, or with a, like, crazy, toxic, dangerous teacher. Um, uh, so for uh, the last four years, if you wanted – a moral articulation uh, of a problem in society, you weren't going to get it from the president of the United States. In fact, chances are were unusually high that he would have caused whatever that problem was or played a contributing role to that problem. And so other people have to kind of stick, come, come forward in that situation. But I also feel as though uh, as as the role of journalism changes and, and as American trust in journalism kind of gets emptied out, um, and, and, and there are ways in which, of course, aspects of American journalism are more and more endangered, um, particularly newspapers. There's a way in which comedians have played an even greater role also. And first of all, in acquainting 
Americans with uh, things in the news, helping Americans who feel buffeted and confused by the competing narratives they find on social media, helping those uh, people kind of understand what it is they're really seeing uh, and uh, and helping them maybe begin to have thoughts and feelings about those things. So we're going to give you a few examples. Uh, we're going to start with Stephen Colbert, uh, host of CBS's late night show with uh, Stephen Colbert. Um, he in particular was uh, eager to or thought it was important anyway to point out the role that President Trump uh, had played uh, in the lead up to last Tuesday's violence. When people tried to warn the former president, I mean, listen to this reporter, ask him directly about the effects of his racist language one year ago today. Do you think using the term Chinese virus that puts Asian Americans at risk, that people no, might target not at all. that? No, not at all. I think they probably uh, would agree with it 100 percent. Wow. Our former president bears a particular responsibility for amplifying this form of hatred. You know, I don't know how much Colbert has dealt with this or not, but he's probably in a slightly squirmy position himself right now. If you remember the old days of the Colbert Report, where he played a kind of strutting, impervious to nuance, America first, pre-Trump, Trump, Bill O'Reilly inspired character. One of the things that character did in character was, in fact, a, a kind of a very patronizing and offensive uh, Asian impersonation. He had a character named like Chang Chung or something like that. And he, he would uh, talk about talk in a very exaggerated way uh, as that person. Now, Colbert was taking a huge risk in doing that. Uh, he was doing it to lampoon the kind of person who might find something like that funny. But in order to try such a thing, he had to do it uh, and do it on camera. Um, and I don't know what he's said about that in the past. And I'm sure it's something he doesn't want to talk about lately. I actually, if you want to go back and watch that monologue, though, I think he's very effective in it. Um, does not completely sacrifice comedy, uh, manages to point out some things that are darkly comic uh, about all of this, and manages, manages to get a few extra innings in uh, against President Trump, who is one of his longtime uh, enemies. All right, so um, less willing to look for any laughter in this situation was Trevor Noah, uh, who I think has become an increasingly effective American conscience uh, as the host of Com Comedy Central's late, The Late Show. Uh, he says there could have been more than one motivation for last week's mass shooting in Georgia, uh, but don't say it had nothing to do with racism. Racism, misogyny, gun violence, mental illness. And honestly, this incident might have been all of those things combined because it doesn't have to be one thing on its own. America is a rich tapestry of mass shooting motivations. But whatever you do, please do, don't tell me that this thing had nothing to do with race. Even if the shooter says that, he thinks it had to do with his sex addiction. You can't disconnect this violence from the racial stereotypes that people attach to Asian women. This guy blamed a specific race of people for his problems and then murdered them because of it. If that's not racism, then the word has no meaning. It was interesting to watch that and to see the obvious disruption of Trevor Noah's normal kind of comic, cool demeanor. Uh, he uh, clearly is in no mood to make any kind of jokes about this. And, and I think that's another part of this, all right? 
is that the people who make us laugh, particularly the people who make us laugh on kind of a daily basis, people who host uh, these late night shows who are on very nearly daily become kind of, if you're a fan of the show, they become part of the warp and weave of your own existence. So you're used to a certain way that they are. Um, You're used to a certain demeanor that they pretty consistently exhibit uh, as you tune in every night. Um, if they break that, if they break with it, it's a big thing and you really notice it. Uh, and, and, and there's just this really, really long tradition anyway of, uh, of, Americans, uh, of American comics starting at least with Will Rogers uh, and then moving through Lenny Bruce and then moving through Richard Pryor, being able to say the truth uh, and some of it goes back to Shakespeare, to the idea of the fool who could speak the truth to the king when others could not. But there's a way uh, that comedians do this for us. And, and the way, there's a way in which late night commentary, late night comic commentary has become increasingly important. And I do feel as though – I mean I say this with some chagrin uh, as a journalist – but I feel like in some ways it's, it is a little bit of filling a vacuum. There's a, sometimes we have not done as good a job of explaining this stuff. Um, and sometimes we don't do as good a job of explaining this stuff. And, and I would say that John Oliver now has emerged. I mean John Oliver should, if he hasn't been nominated yet, John Oliver should and will be nominated. There's actually a Pulitzer category called explanatory journalism. His show does it remarkably well, often about very complex and underdocumented topics. Uh, and, and it's with each passing season, I think, taking tiny steps away from pure comedy. I, it, it left pure comedy a long time ago, taking tiny steps away from, uh, from comedy and more and more towards serious content. I think I quoted this last week talking to Lauren Euler, but uh, Robertson Davies, uh, the Canadian writer in writing an, an essay about humor, he said, he said something to the, to the effect that scratch a humorist and you will find a deeply serious person who has discovered that humor is the medium in which he or she functions best in terms of getting that message across. Because I think that's another part of it. We're willing to hear hard truths from people who ordinarily make us laugh because we have a positive association with them, because uh, we, we don't associate them necessarily with, uh, with, with bitter medicine. So uh, although with John Oliver, I think we're getting more and more used to that particular um, to that particular mixture. So when I was first proposing to producer Betsy Kaplan, yeah, maybe we'll do a final segment uh, that's about late night comedians talking about this stuff. And I'd already seen the Trevor Noah thing and the Stephen Colbert thing. And then I said, we were saying this on Sunday morning in a set of emails. I said, and John Oliver will definitely come through tonight. There's no question about that. So here's John Oliver, host of HBO Max's last week tonight with John Oliver, who says that hate crimes against Asian Americans are very American, and so are Americans denying that they're racist. Anti-Asian racism has long been a fact of American life. From the treatment of Chinese railroad workers in the 1800s, through the Chinese Exclusion Act, through the Watsonville riots in 1930, in which a white mob rampaged through a Filipino community, through the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, through deadly cases of racial scapegoating, like the murder of Vincent Chin, killed in 1982 by two white auto workers in Detroit. Witnesses said the men mistook Chin, a Chinese American, for being Japanese, blamed him for taking their jobs, and beat him to death. And by the way, 
Even though they had reportedly used racial slurs during the attack, the men still tried to claim that they were not motivated by race. So not only are hate crimes against Asian Americans very much American, so is denying that they're racist. It's all so American, in fact, the national anthem could probably begin, oh, say, can you see that this wasn't about race? So that's, I think, really kind of getting at the truth of this. And you, you've kind of heard it again and again over the course of, of this show, too, that it, it's a hard truth about America. This is a really violent country. You know, there there are very few other countries. I think probably at this point, we, we, we may be the only country that actually mentions firearms in our constitution. Uh, Mexico and Guatemala did have references to firearms in, in their constitution, but it's, have since either amended them out or scrapped that constitution in favor of another one. Um, you know, our, our myths are, are violent. Our myths are violent in a way that exaggerates uh, even some of the, the real violence. Um, for example, the, our, our myths uh, of the role of guns uh, in the so-called wild, wild west are exaggerations of history. The historian Richard Slotkin has written about this in Gunfighter Nation because we want that story. We like that idea that uh, at some point in the 19th century, uh, there were places in the West where disputes were settled man to man in very violent ways with guns. We want that story to be true, truer than it really is. Uh, and we have a hard time admitting to ourselves, we, we see ourselves uh, as this island of peace and prosperity. Uh, but underneath that is a tremendous amount of violence, and a lot of it is driven by race. Um, and if anything good comes out of the period that we've been through that extends at least back into last year and Black Lives Matter uh, and certainly uh, centers on this moment uh, with re uh, violence against Asian Americans, maybe it's an increasing recognition that our myths – and our realities include more violence and more racism than we as Americans like. So thank you, comedians, for making that point. Uh, thank you, Betsy Kaplan and Kat Pastor, for helping me do this show today. Uh, we've got a whole raft of shows ready for you this week, so stay with us. And his history Could have happened to you Could have happened to me 